Chapter 12 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Syria, the Desert, and the Sun by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 12. All my leisure moments during the two days in Aleppo were occupied in changing muleteers. It seemed a necessary, if a regrettable, measure. At Antioch we should reach the limits of the Arabic-speaking population. Khabib and his father had no word of Turkish. Mikhail owned to a few substantives such as egg, milk, and piaster, while I was scarcely more accomplished. I shrank from plunging with my small party into lands where we should be unable to do more than proclaim our most pressing needs or ask the way. The remarkable aptitude of North Syrian muleteers had been much vaunted to me. The title of muleteer is really a misnomer, for as a fact, the beast of burden in these parts is a sorry nag, Kadish, as it is called in Arabic. From Alexandretta to Konya, I doubt if we ever saw a mule. Certainly we never saw a caravan of mules. I had heard then that I should not begin to know what it was to travel in comfort, without worry or responsibility, and with punctuality and speed, until I had reorganized my service, and that when I reached Konya, I should be able to break up my caravan if I pleased, and as I pleased, and the Aleppo men would find their way home with another load. So I said good-bye to my Beirutis, and to peace. The system on which the journey was henceforth conducted was the sweating system. The sweater was a toothless old wretch, Paris by name, who shared with his brother one of the largest teams of baggage animals in Aleppo. Owing to his lack of teeth, he spoke Arabic and Turkish, equally incomprehensibly. He supplied me with four baggage horses and rode himself on a fifth for his own convenience and at his own expense, though he tried vainly to make me pay for his mount when we reached Konya. He hired two boys at a starvation wage to do all the work of the camp and the march and fed them on starvation fare. This unhappy couple went on foot, the independent men of the Lebanon had provided themselves with donkeys, and it was a part of their contract with Faris that he should give them shoes, but he refused to do so until I interfered and threatened to dock his wages of the price of the shoes and buy them myself. I was obliged also to look into the commissariat and see that the pair had at least enough food to keep them in working condition. But in spite of all my efforts, the hired boys deserted at every stage, and I suffered continual annoyance from the delays caused by the difficulty of finding others, and still more from the necessity of teaching each new couple the details of their work, where the tent pegs were to be placed, how the loads were to be divided, and a hundred other small but important matters. I had also to goad Faris who was furnished with a greater number of excuses for shirking labor than any man in Aleppo into doing some share of his duty, and to superintend night and morning the feeding of my horses, which would otherwise have escaped starvation as narrowly as the hired boys. 
Finally, when we came to Konya, I found that Faris had turned the last of his slaves onto the street and had refused categorically to take them back to their home at Adana, saying that when he escaped from my eye, he could get cheaper men than they. And since I would not abandon two boys who had, according to their stupid best, done what they could to serve me, I was obliged to help them to return to their native place. To sum up the evidence, I should say that those who recommend the muleteers of Aleppo and their abominable system can never have directed a well-trained and well-organized camp where the work goes as regularly as Big Ben and the men have cheerful faces and willing hands, nor can they have experience of real business-like travel, for that is possible only with servants who show courage in difficulties, enterprise, and resource. I admit that my experience is small, and I confidently assert that it will never be larger, for I would bring muleteers from Baghdad rather than engage Faris or his like a second time. It was just when the difficulties of the journey multiplied that Mikhail's virtue collapsed. Two days spent in drinking the health of his departing companions, with whom he was on excellent terms, as the members of a good camp should be, were enough to shatter the effects of two months' sobriety. From that time forward, the harak bottle bulked large in his saddlebags, and though an harak bottle can be searched for and found in saddlebags and broken on a stone, no amount of vigilance could keep Mikhail out of the wine shop when we reached a town. Adversity teaches many lessons. I look back with mingled feelings upon the uneasy four weeks between our departure from Aleppo and the time when Providence sent me another and a better man, and I hardened my heart to dismiss Mikhail, but I do not regret the schooling that was forced on me. Haj Mahmud reached at Aleppo the term of his commission, and from him also I took a most reluctant farewell. The Vali provided me with a Zaptia, whose name was Haj Najib, a Kurd of unprepossessing appearance, who proved, on acquaintance, a useful and obliging man, familiar with the district through which we traveled together, and with the people inhabiting it. We were late in starting, Mikhail being sodden with Karak, and the muleteers unhandy with the loads. The day, it was March 30th, was cloudless, and for the first time the sun was unpleasantly hot. When we rode away at ten o'clock, it was already blazing fiercely upon us, and the whole day long there was not a scrap of shade in all the barren track. We followed for a mile or so the Alexandretta High Road, passing a café with a few trees about it, soon after which we struck away to the left and entered a path that led us into the bare rocky hills and speedily became as rocky as they. Our course was east with a touch of north, at half-past twelve, we stopped to lunch and waited a full hour for the baggage, during which time I had leisure to reflect upon the relative marching speed of the new servants and the old, and on the burning heat of the sun that had not been so noticeable when we were riding. Half an hour further, we passed a hovel, Yaqit Hadiz, where Najib suggested that we might camp but I decided that it was too early, 
and after we had given strict injunctions to Faris concerning the route he was to follow, and the exact spot where we should camp, the Zaptia and I bettered our pace, and without going beyond a walk were soon out of sight of the others. We rode along the bottom of a bare winding valley, past several places that were marked on the map, though they were no more than the smallest heaps of ruins, and at four o'clock turned up the northern slope of the valley and reached a hamlet, unknown to Keepert, which Najib informed me to be Kabashin. Here, amid a few old walls and many modern refuse heaps, we found a Kurdish camp, one of the springtime camps in which half-nomadic people dwell with their flocks at the season of fresh grass. The walls of the tents, if tents they may be called, were roughly built of stone to a height of about five feet, but the roofs were of goat's hair cloth raised in the center by tent poles. The Kurdish shepherds crowded round us and conversed with Najib in their own tongue, which sounded vaguely familiar on account of its likeness to Persian. They spoke Arabic also, a queer jargon full of Turkish words. We sat for some time on the rubbish heap, watching for the baggage animals, till I became convinced, in spite of Najib's assurances, that some hitch must have occurred and that we might watch forever in vain. At this point, the Kurdish sheikh announced that it was dinner time and invited us to share the meal. One of the advantages of outdoor life on short commons being that there is no moment of the day when you are not willing and ready to eat, we fell in joyfully with the suggestion. The Kurd has not been given a good name in the annals of travel. Report would have him both sulky and quarrelsome, but for my part I have found him to be endowed with most of the qualities that make for agreeable social intercourse. We were ushered into the largest of the houses. It was light and cool, airy and clean, its peculiar construction giving it the advantages of house and of tent. The food consisted of new bread and sour curds and of an excellent pilaf, in which cracked wheat was substituted for rice. It was spread upon a mat, and we sat round upon rugs while the women served us. By the time we had finished, it was six o'clock, but no caravan had appeared. Najib was much perplexed, and our hosts sympathized deeply with our case, while declaring that they were more than willing to keep us for the night. Our hesitation was cut short by a small boy who came running in with the news that a caravan had been seen to pass by the village of Fafertin on the opposite side of the valley, and that it was then heading for Kalat Simhan, our ultimate destination. There was no time to be lost. The sun had set, and I had a vivid recollection of our wanderings in the night about El Bara in a country not dissimilar from that which lay in front of us. But before we started, I took Najib aside and asked him whether I might give money in return for my entertainment. He replied that on no account was it to be thought of. Kurds do not expect to be paid by their guests. All that was left me was to summon the children and distribute a handful of metalliques among them, an inexpensive form of generosity, and one that could not outrage the most susceptible feelings. We set off, Najib leading the way and riding so quickly along the stony path that I had the greatest difficulty in keeping up with him. 
I knew that the great church of St. Simon Stylites stood upon a hill and must be visible from afar, though the famous column of the saint round which the church was built had fallen centuries ago. After an hour's stumbling ride, Najib pointed silently to the dim hills, and I could just make out a mass of something that looked like a fortress breaking the line of the summit. We hurried on for another half hour and reached the walls at 7.30 in complete darkness. As we rode through the huge church, we heard to our relief a tinkle of caravan bells that assured us of the arrival of the tents. We heard also the shouts and objurgations of Mikhail, who, under the influence of potations of Harak, was raging like a wild beast and refusing to give the new muleteers any hint as to the way in which to deal with my English tent, since I was the only sane person who knew how the poles were to be fitted together, the pegs driven in, and the furniture opened out, I was obliged to do the greater part of the work myself by the light of two candles, and when that was over, to search the canteen for bread and semen for the muleteers, and order to my rebellious cook that he should prepare the customary evening meal of rice, having been greeted with derisive howls mingled with curses on all and sundry. It is ill arguing with a drunken man, but with what feelings I kept silence I hope that the recording angel may have omitted to note. At last, when all was ready, I wandered away into the sweet spring night, through the stately and peaceful church below the walls of which we were lying, and presently found myself in a circular court, open to the sky, from whence the four arms of the church reach out to the four points of the compass. The court had been set round with a matchless colonnade, of which many of the arches are still standing, and in the center rose in former days the column whereon St. Simon lived and died. I scrambled over the heaps of ruin till I came to the rock-hewn base of that very column, a broad block of splintered stone with a depression in the middle, like a little bowl filled with clear rainwater in which I washed my hands and face. There was no moon. The piers and arches stood in ruined and shadowy splendor. The soft air lay still as an unruffled pool, Weariness and vexation dropped from the spirit and left it bare to heaven and the spring. I sat and thought how perverse a trick fortune had played that night on the grim saint. She had given for a night his throne of bitter dreams to one whose dreams were rosy with a deep content that he would have been the first to condemn. So musing, I caught the eye of a great star that had climbed up above the broken line of the arcade, and we agreed together that it was better to journey over earth and sky than to sit upon a column all your days. The members of the American survey have mapped and thoroughly explored the northern mountains as far as Kalat Simkhan, but neither they nor any other travelers have published an account of the hilly region to the northeast of the shrine. Footnote. Since writing this chapter, I have learnt that Mr. Butler and his party extended their explorations to the north of Kalatsim Khan after my departure, and I look forward to a full description of the district in their future publications. End of note. I, who rode through it and visited almost all the ruined villages, found that it was generally known to the inhabitants 
as the Jebel Simchan, by which title I shall speak of it. The mountains of Simon, with the Jebel Barisha to the southwest, and the Jebel al-Hala, still further to the west, belong to the same architectural system as the Jebel Zadiyah, through which we had passed on our way to Aleppo. It would be possible to draw distinctions of style between the northern group and the southern. The American architect, Mr. Butler, with his wide experience of the two districts, has been able to do so, but to the hasty observer the differences appear to depend chiefly on natural conditions and on the fact that the northern district fell more directly under the influence of Antioch, the city which was one of the main sources of artistic inspiration, not for Syria alone, in the early centuries of the Christian era. The settlements in the Jebel Simchan are smaller, and the individual houses less spacious, possibly because the northern mountains were much more rugged and unable to support so large and wealthy a population. They would seem to have begun earlier and to have reached the highest point of their prosperity a little later, nor did they suffer the period of decline which is evident in the south during the century preceding the Arab invasion. Footnote. I would suggest that this decline was due in part to the excessive burden of taxation laid by Justinian on the eastern provinces of his empire during his efforts to recover the western. Readers of Deal's great work on Justinian will remember how the social and political organization of his dominions collapsed under the strain of his wars in Italy and North Africa. The eastern parts of the empire were the richest and suffered the most. End of note. The finest 6th century churches in the north show an almost florid luxuriance of decoration unapproached in the latest of the southern churches, all of which are to be dated a century earlier, except the Bezos Church at Rueja. It is interesting to observe that the Rueja Church, though it is a little later than the Kalhat Simchan, is far more severe in detail, and to this it may be added that even small houses in the north present not infrequently a greater variety and lavishness of decoration than is customary in the south. Footnote. This was noticed by Mr. Butler, Architecture and the Other Arts. End of note. When the traveler reads the inscriptions on church and dwelling and finds the dates reckoned in the north always by the era of Antioch, he may be pardoned for surmising that it was the magnificent hand of Antioch that touched here architrave and capital, molding and string course. The church of St. Simon was raised not by local effort only, but as a tribute to the famous saint from the whole Christian world and probably it was not executed by local workmen, but by the builders and stonecutters of Antioch. If that be so, it is difficult not to attribute the lovely church of Carbloze to the same created forces, and a dozen smaller examples, such as the East Church at Bakirha, must be due to similar influences. I spent the morning examining the church of St. Simon and the village at the foot of the hill, which contains some very perfect basilicas and the ruins of a great hostelry for pilgrims. At lunchtime there appeared upon the scene a Kurd, so engaging and intelligent that I immediately selected him to be my guide during the next few days, 
The district I proposed to visit being blank on the map, stony, and roadless. Musa was the name of my new friend, and as we rode together in the afternoon, he confided to my private ear that he was by creed a Yazidi whom the Mohammedans call devil worshippers, though I fancy they are a harmless and well-meaning people. The upper parts of Mesopotamia are their home, and from thence Musa's family had originally migrated. We talked of beliefs as we went, guardedly, since our acquaintance was as yet young, and Musa admitted that the Yazidis worshipped the sun. A very proper object of adoration, said I, and thinking to please him, went on to mention that the Ismailis worshipped both sun and moon, but he could scarcely control his disgust at the thought of such idolatry. This led me to consider within myself whether the world had grown much wiser since the days when St. Simon sat on his column, and the conclusion that I reached was not flattering. The rain interrupted our wanderings among the villages at the foot of Jebel Sheikh Barakat, the high peak to the southeast of Kalat Simchan, and drove us home, but the clouds lifted again towards evening, and I, watching from the marvelous west door, saw the hills turn the color of red copper and the gray walls of the church to gold. Mikhail, depressed and repentant, served me with an excellent dinner, in spite of which I should have dismissed him if St. Simon could have supplied me with another cook. Indeed, I was half inclined to send back to Aleppo for a new man, but the doubt whether I should secure a good servant by proxy combined with the clemency of indolence, led me to a course of inaction which I attempted to justify by the hope that Mikhail's repentance would be of a lasting nature. Thus, for a month, we lived on a volcano with occasional eruptions and were blown up at the end. But enough of this painful subject. The next day, I set off with Musa to explore the villages in the Jebel Simkhan, to the east and northeast of the church of St. Simon. We rode almost due east for rather less than an hour to Burjka, which exhibited all the characteristics of these villages of the extreme north. It had the tall square tower, which is nearly universal. All the stonework was massive, the blocks frequently laid not in courses, or if so laid, the courses showed great variety of depth. The church had a square apse built out beyond the walls of the nave, and a running molding hooded each window, passed along the level of the sill from one window to another, and ended beyond the last in a spiral, as though it had been a bit of ribbon festooned over the openings with the surplus rolled up. This molding is peculiar to 6th century decoration in North Syria. The houses of Burjka were very simple square cottages built of polygonal masonry. Musa got wind of a newly opened tomb near the church. I contrived with some difficulty to crawl down into it and was rewarded by finding on one of the loculi the date 292 of the era of Antioch, which corresponds to 243 AD. Below the date were three lines of Greek inscription, much defaced. We rode on for half an hour to Sirkanya, a deserted village charmingly situated at the head of a shallow rocky valley 
in which there were even a few trees. The houses were exceptionally massive in construction, with heavy stone balconies forming a porch over the door. One was dated, and the year was 406 A.D. The church was almost exactly similar to that at Burjka. Another three-quarters of an hour to the north, and we reached Fafertine, where it began to rain. We took shelter under an apse, which was all that remained of a church larger than any we had yet seen, but rude in workmanship. Footnote. Butler, in his report, states that this church is dated 372 A.D., which gives it the distinction of being the earliest dated church in Syria, if not the earliest dated church in the world. End of note. The village was inhabited by a few families of Yazidi Kurds. In the streaming rain, we rode for an hour northeast to Kirab Eshems, but could do nothing there owing to the weather, and so north by Kaluta to Burj El Khas, where I found my tents pitched on a damp sward. Musa was much distressed by the heavy rain, and said that the wet spring had been disastrous to his fields, washing down the soil from the high ground into the valleys. The work of denudation, which has so greatly diminished the fertility of North Syria, is still going forward. At Burj El Khas, there was a square tower on top of the hill and some old houses that had been repaired and re-inhabited by the Kurds. On one lintel, I saw the date 406 A.D., on another, an inscription difficult to decipher. The end of this stone was hidden by the angle of a rebuilt house, but peering along it, I could just make out that there was a small carving at the extreme point. The owner of the house announced that it represented, without doubt, the Lady Mary. This would have been a curious addition to the meager collection of sculpture in North Syria, as well as a theological innovation, and I expressed my regret that I could not see it better. Thereupon my friend fetched a pickaxe and chipped off a corner of his house, and the figure of the Virgin proved to be a Roman eagle. With Najib and Musa, I returned to the villages that I had passed in the rain the previous day. We left Najib with the horses at Kaluta and ourselves walked to Kirab Eshems, the path being so rocky that I wished to spare my beasts a second journey over it. Kirab Eshems contained a fine church, twenty-one paces long from the west door to the cord of the apse. The outer walls to north and south had fallen, leaving only the five arches on either side of the nave, with a clear story pierced by ten small round-headed windows, a charming fragment like a detached loggia. Further up the hill stood a massive chapel, destitute of aisles, with an apse built out and roofed with a semi-dome of square slabs resembling the 5th century baptistery at Darkita. Footnote. Butler, Architecture and Other Arts, page 139. End of note. In the hillside, we found a number of rock-hewn tombs, in one of which I had the satisfaction to discover some curious reliefs. On the loculus to the left of the door were four roughly carved figures, their arms raised in the attitude of prayer, and on the rock wall in a dark corner, a single figure clothed in a shirt and a pointed cap 
holding a curious object like a basket in the right hand. Returning to Kaluta, we visited an isolated church on some high ground to the west of the village. On the wall by the south door, there was a long inscription in Greek. The nave was separated from the aisles by four columns on either side, some of which, to judge by the fragments, had been fluted and some plain. The arcade ended against the corner of the apse with engaged fluted columns carrying beautiful Corinthian capitals. The apse, prothesis, and diaconicum were all contained within the outer wall of the church. The west door showed a stilted, relieving arch above a broken lintel, the lintel decorated with a row of dentils. To the south of the church there was a detached baptistery, some nine feet square inside, the walls still carrying the first course of the stone vault. The church must have been roofed with tiles, for I saw a number of fragments lying in the nave, a massive enclosing wall surrounded both church and baptistery. The village below contained two churches, that to the west measuring 38 feet by 68 feet, the other 48 feet by 70 feet. The moldings round the doors in both churches indicate that they cannot have been earlier than the 6th century. There were also some houses with stone verandas. An hour and a half to the northwest of Kaluta lies Barad, the largest and most interesting of the villages in the Jebel Simchan. It is partly re-inhabited by Kurds. I found my camp pitched in an open space opposite a very lovely funeral monument, consisting of a canopy carried by four piers set on a high podium. Near it stood a large rock-cut sarcophagus and a number of other tombs, partly rock-cut and partly built. I examined two churches in the center of town. In one, the nave, 68 feet 6 inches long, was divided from the aisles by four great piers, six feet deep from east to west, with an intercolumniation of 18 feet. The nave was 23 feet wide and the apse 12 feet deep. The wide intercolumniation is a proof of a comparatively late date, 6th century or thereabouts. The second church was still larger, 118 feet 6 inches by 73 feet 6 inches, but completely ruined except for the west wall and part of the apse. To the north of it there was a small chapel with an apse perfectly preserved. Near it lay a sarcophagus, which suggested that the chapel may have been a mausoleum. The eastern end of the town contained a complex of buildings of polygonal masonry, including a square enclosure with a square chamber in the center of it, resting on a vault that was possibly a tomb. To the extreme west of the town stood a fine tower with some large and well-preserved houses near it. A small church lay between it and the main body of the town. Near my camp was a curious building with two apses irregularly placed in the east wall. I take it to have been pre-Christian. The wall stood up to the vault, which was perfectly preserved. While Musa and I measured and planned this building, we were watched by two persons in long white robes and turbans who exhibited the greatest interest in our movements. They were, said Musa, government officials sent into the Jebel Simchan to take a census of the population with a view to levying the capitation tax. The next day was one of the most disagreeable that I remember. A band of thick clouds stretched across the sky immediately above the Jebel Simchan, 
keeping us in a cold gray shadow, while to north and south we saw the mountains and the plain bathed in sunshine. We rode north for about an hour to Kefar, a large village near the extreme edge of the Jebel Simkhan. Beyond the valley of the Afrin, which bounds the hills to the northwest, rose the first great buttresses of the Giur Dagh. Musa observed that in the valley and the further hills there were no more ruined villages. They end abruptly at the limits of the Jebel Simkhan, and Syrian civilization seems to have penetrated no further to the north. For what reason, it is impossible to say. At Kefar there were three churches, much ruined, but showing traces of decoration exquisitely treated, a few good houses, and a canopy tomb something like the one at Barad. There was a large population of Kurds. We rode back to Barad, and so southeast to Kefar Nebu, about an hour and a half away, through bitter wind and rain. There was a Syriac inscription here on a lintel, one or two Kufic tombstones, and a very splendid house, partially restored, but I was a great deal too cold to give them the attention they deserved. Chilled to the bone, and profoundly discouraged by attempts at taking time exposures in a high wind, I made straight for my tents at Basufan, an hour's ride from Kefir Nebu, leaving unexplored a couple of ruined sites to the south. Musa's home is at Basufan. We met his father in the cornfields as we came up, and, God strengthen your body, cried Musa, giving the salutation proper to one working in the fields. And your body, he answered, lifting his dim eyes to us. He is old, explained Musa as we rode on, and trouble has fallen on him, but once he was the finest man in the Jebel Simchan, and the best shot. What trouble, said I. My brother was slain by a blood enemy a few months ago, he answered. We do not know who it was that killed him, but perhaps it was one of his bride's family, for he took her without their consent. And what has happened to the bride? I asked. She has gone back to her own family, said he, but she wept bitterly. Basufan is used as a summer friche by certain Jews and Christians of Aleppo, who come out and live in the houses of the Kurds during the hot months, the owners being at that season in tents. There are a few big trees to the south of the village, sheltering a large graveyard, which is occupied mostly by Moslem dead, brought to this spot from many miles round. The valley below boasts a famous spring, a spring that never runs dry, even in rainless years when all its sister fountains are exhausted. The Kurds used to grow tobacco on the neighboring slopes, and the quality of the leaf was much esteemed, so that the crop found a ready sale till the government regie was established and paid the Kurds such miserable prices that they were unable to make a profit. As there was no other market, the industry ceased altogether, and the fields have passed out of cultivation except for the raising of a little corn, and now we are all poor, said Musa, in conclusion. I had not been an hour in camp before the rain stopped and the sun came out, bringing back our energy with it. 
There was a large church at Basufan, which had been converted at some period into a fort by the addition of three towers. What remained of the original building was of excellent work. The engaged columns by the apse were adorned with spiral flutings. The first example I had seen, and the Corinthian capitals were deep and careful in cutting. Musa showed me a Syriac inscription in the south wall, which I copied with great labor and small success. The devil take all Syriac inscriptions, or endow all travelers with better wits. When this was done, there still remained a couple of hours of afternoon light, and I determined to walk over the hills to Burj Haida and Kefir Lab, which I had omitted in the morning owing to the rain and the cold. Musa accompanied me and took with him his partner, so he was introduced to me, but in what enterprise he shared, I do not know. Burj Haida was well worth a visit. It contained a square tower and three churches, one exceedingly well-preserved, with an interesting building annexed to it, perhaps a lodging for the clergy. But the expedition was chiefly memorable on account of the conversation of my two companions. With Musa, I had contracted, during the three days we had passed together, a firm friendship, based on my side, on gratitude for the services he had rendered me, coupled with a warm appreciation of the beaming smile that accompanied them. We had reached a point of familiarity where I thought I might fairly expect him to enlighten me on the Yazidi doctrines, for whatever may be the custom in Europe, in Asia it is not polite to ask a man what he believes unless he regards you as an intimate, nor is it expedient. It awakens suspicion without evoking a satisfactory answer. I began delicately, as we sat in the doorway of the little church at Kefir Lab, by asking whether the Yazidis possessed mosque or church. No, replied Musa, we worship under the open sky. Every day, at dawn, we worship the sun. Have you, said I, an imam who leads the prayer? On feast days, said he, the sheikh leads the prayer, but on other days every man worships for himself. We count some days lucky and some unlucky. Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday are our lucky days, but Thursday is unlucky. Why is that, said I? I do not know, said Musa, it is so. Are you, I asked, friends with the Mohammedans, or are you foes? He answered, here in the country, round Aleppo, where we are few, they do not fear us, and we live at peace with them. But every year there comes to us from Mosul a very learned sheikh who collects tribute among us, and he wonders to see us like brothers with the Muslimin, for in Mosul, where the Yazidis are many, there is bitter feud. In Mosul, our people will not serve in the army, but here we serve like any other. I myself have been a soldier. Have you holy books? said I. Without doubt, said he, and I will tell you what our books teach us. When the end of the world is near, Hadud Madud will appear on earth, and before his time, the race of men will have shrunken stature, so that they are smaller than a blade of grass. But Hadud Madud is a mighty giant, and in seven days, or seven months, or seven years, he will drink all the seas and all the rivers, and the earth will be drained dry. 
And then, said the partner, who had followed Musa's explanation eagerly, out of the dust will spring a great worm, and he will devour Hadud Madud. And when he has eaten him, continued Musa, there will be a flood which will last seven days or seven months or seven years. And the earth will be washed clean, chimed in the partner. And then will come the Mahdi, said Musa, and he will summon the four sects, Yazidis, Christians, Moslems, and Jews, and he will appoint the prophet of each sect to collect his followers together. And Yazid will assemble the Yazidis, and Jesus the Christians, and Muhammad the Moslems, and Moses the Jews. But those that, while they live, changed from one faith to another, they shall be tried by fire to see what creed they profess in their hearts. So shall each prophet know his own. This is the end of the world. Do you, said I, consider all the four faiths to be equal? Musa replied, diplomatically perhaps, The Christians and the Jews, we think, equal to us. And the Moslems, I inquired? We think them to be swine, said Musa. These are the tenets of Musa's faith, and what they signify I will not pretend to say, but Hadud Madud is probably Gog Magog, if that throws any light on the matter. The sun was setting when we rose from the church step and began to clamber homeward over the ruins of Kafir Lab. There was some broken ground beyond the village, and I noticed large cavities under the rocks at the top of the hill, before them, Musa's partner paused and said, In this manner of place we look for treasure. And do you find it? said I. He replied, I have never found any, but there are many tales. Once, they say, there was a shepherd boy who lost his goat and searched for it over the hills, and at last he came upon it in a cave full of gold coins. Therefore he closed the mouth of the cave and hastened home to fetch an ass whereon he might load the gold, and in his haste he left the goat in the cave. But when he returned, there was neither cave, nor goat, nor gold, search as he would. And another time, said Musa, a boy was sleeping in the ruins of Kafir Lab, and he dreamt that he had discovered a great treasure in the earth, and that he had dug for it with his hands. And when he woke, his hands were covered with the dust of gold, but no memory remained to him of the place wherein he had dug. Neither of these stories offer sufficient data, however, to warrant the dispatch of a treasure-hunting expedition to the Jebel Simhan. As we reached Masufan, Musa asked whether his sister Warda, the Rose, might honor herself by paying her respects to me. And will you, he added, persuade her to marry? To marry, said I, whom should she marry? Anyone, said Musa imperturbably. She has declared that marriage is hateful to her, and that she will remain in our father's house, and we cannot move her. Yet she is a young maid, and fair. She looked very fair, and modest besides, as she stood at the door of my tent in the pretty dress of the Kurdish women, with a bowl of kaimak in her hands, a propitiatory gift to me, and I confess I did not insist upon the marriage question, thinking that she could best manage her own affairs. She brought me new bread for breakfast next morning, 
and begged me to come and visit her father's house before I left. This I did, and found the whole family, sons and daughters-in-law, and grandchildren, assembled to welcome me, and though I had but recently breakfasted, the old father insisted on setting bread and bowls of cream before me, that the bond of hospitality may be between us. Fine, well-built people were they all, with beautiful faces, illumined by the smile that was Musa's chief attraction. For their sake the Kurdish race shall hold hereafter a large place in my esteem. End of chapter 12. Recording by Tad Davis.